0: Welcome, here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Well, welcome. And uh, I'm excited today because we're starting a new series, a series um, on the church. Now, what, some of you guys don't know this, but when uh, prior to the year starting, uh, the pastors and elders, we get together and just kind of pray and, and ask God for what is it that he is wanting us to say and communicate to the church. And so we uh, plan out the whole year of uh, what needs to be said on Sunday in order to reflect that. And so when it got around to this idea of the church, I was you know, excited, and then I was tapped to be the one to explain it, and then I got a little nervous. <laughs> because uh, if there's ever an issue in the, in the body of Christ and in the world that is kind of wrought with uh, so many mixed feelings, so many uh, wounds, and so many disagreements, it's that of the church. What is it? Why is it here? And what are we supposed to be and do? And um, and so, as I began to prepare, it became a little bit overwhelming to try to whittle that down into three sermons. I mean, there are so many different pictures and descriptions, I mean, in the New Testament about what the church is and, and what it's for and who it is that it, it, it's kind of like, man, where do you pick? And so, what we're gonna do and. And what we're going to try to accomplish over these next three weeks is just to look at the three uh, three major metaphors uh, that are used in the Bible to talk about one basic truth, which is the church. Three metaphors, one truth. So the first today we're going to look at the church as a building. And the second we're going to look at the church next week as the body of Christ. And third, we're gonna look at the church as a family and the household of God. Now, already in preparation, so I'm gonna give you a little bit of a, a head start. You're gonna feel some frustration in the fact that we can't cover all the dynamics of all the church is in one message. It's just too vast. We'd be here all night. And so, you know, we have to kind of limit and just kind of take the time that we have to just take one chunk at a time and, uh, and, and just kind of meditate on that. Are y'all with me? Yes. All right. So the first thing is this question, why church? And probably never before in the history of this country and probably even in the world has this been a bigger question. We we don't even start with the assumption that this is something that is a good thing or something that is even a valuable thing to be a part of. In fact, uh, one statistic shows that 81% of Americans say that you can... Live a flourishing Christian life without going to church at all. Others feel like if you were to ask what is the one institution responsible for suffering and destruction and even wars in the world, they would say the church. So far be it from even being a good thing, some would even say it is the problem. And and so As we get into this issue, it's like, well, what is it? But more than ever, and it was so amazing, I just, uh, Barna Group, uh, it's a group that studies um, trends and issues of faith in America in particular. They just tweeted out a a release of a report that they did this month talking about the group and focusing on the group uh, that identifies with the phrase, I love Jesus, but not the church. How many of us have heard that before? Now, it was a lot of interesting things that they uncovered and they discovered about this this group, but one of the things is it's it's the fastest-growing denomination in our country. (laughs) And so that's one aspect. So this is a trend, and specifically, they look at the fact that millennials in particular are coming of age at a time of great skepticism and cynicism toward institutions in general and particularly the church. So more and more, you uh, you hear things like, well, you know, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And and nobody really uh, knows exactly what that means. It just has something to do with the fact that, you know, once you get organized, that's a bad thing. It's like religion is the only thing that people hate organized, you know? Like nobody says, I hate organized education. Or like, I hate organized banks. You know, I just like my money just spread out all over the place. You know what I mean? But when it comes to the church, it's like, oh, y'all organized? Okay, nah, I'm no, no thank you. I don't want none of that. <laughs> and so there's this, this tendency to, to be cynical. Now, now, there, now, here's some reasons for that. You know, I mean, it seems like we don't have to look up, but every few weeks, some other scandal has come out that, um, that some church leader or some, some embezzlement, something improper has happened in our institutions. But this is also not just the case of facts, but also the case of perspective in the rising rampant uh, increase of individualism. In the West, we have this, we've been indoctrinated with this sense that I can be all of who I'm supposed to be separate from, independent from anybody else. So clearly then in this area, in this issue of spiritual formation and direction, I don't need anybody else to inform who I am and how I grow spiritually. So this individualism is another key component. Another is relativism. You know, well, who? why would I look to an authority for truth when we all know that there is no real truth? Anybody can make up their own truth. What is truth? The New York Times, the Time Magazine just kind of posted a, a magazine this year, Truth is dead." Now I wanted to ask the editor, is that true? (laughs) But there's this idea, there's this notion, even as contradictory and self-defeating as it is, that somehow we live in a post-truth era. And so then there's that. Then there's the rebellion against an aspect of the questioning of any type of authority. Even the issue of authority people uh, kind of recoil at. And so all of these things, but this is what, but it's not all gloom and doom either. Barna noticed this about this group. He says, they still love Jesus. They still believe in scripture and most of the tenets of their Christian faith, but they have lost faith in the church. They have lost faith in the church. And this is something that I can relate to because even before, I didn't grow up in church at all. I, uh, I, I didn't step foot into a church until I was a teenager. But the thing that was interesting is before I even stepped foot, I had all of the stereotypes down pat. I already knew them because I had been indoctrinated by uh, the media, the stuff that I watched, the, the conversation on the street. And one thing I would even encourage you guys to do is just to do this one time when you're watching a movie or a TV show, and any time you see someone of faith, particularly in a Christian, watch that nine times out of 10, it's a negative person. There's some type of, you know, judgmental, crazy person that's doing something wrong. Now, it's way disproportionate to the actual reality, but this is what you're steeped in. Now, in my case, You know, growing up and seeing different shows on syndication, it was, uh, I was watching Sanford and Son, and it was this sister in there called Aunt Esther. Now, Aunt Esther was like this church lady that you could see with the hat, and, and she always had her purse and her Bible that she walked around with. And this was the first time I'd ever even seen somebody that was a Christian, so to speak, quote, unquote, a church person. And she would always just criticize and, and attack Fred and say, you fish-eye fool. And then she just, you know, continued. And that was her thing. And She was not a likable person. And so I, when I first stepped into the church, I thought, okay, I'm going to see some of them. I'm going to see some, uh, some money-hungry preachers that's just going to, you know, shake down the congregation. I'm going to see a bunch of people that don't like each other but just talk about each other all the time. Like, this is what I thought before I ever stepped foot in the door. So the, as uh, David Kinnaman said in unchristian, the church has an image problem. But there aren't just those issues. There's also the fact that people come with a lot of wounds and baggage, real things. They, don't, they didn't see this on TV, but they experienced it in, 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 in their actual lives. And so what is the definition of the church? Well, this is what most people think the definition of a church is. The church is a building that religious people go to so they can become more religious, <laughs> Right? That's what, that's what people see as a church. However, the New Testament's definition is much, much different. Much, much different. But this is what people are responding to. And so we're going to look at First Peter chapter 2. And um, because of a couple of different reasons, um, I want us to actually when we get there to stand and, and read it together i 'll explain to you a little bit why afterwards um, but uh, let 's stand up and i will pray uh, you know that just over our time into this text and then uh, we 'll read it together i 'm reading from the ESV if you 're you know trying to figure out which in your phone app to uh, which translation to use but uh, let 's pray uh, Heavenly Father, we just um, Come before you. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you, and we pray that you would indeed uh, illuminate to us through your word what is the church and what you have called us to be a part of. Um, we ask that uh, you would just uh, make things clear. That you would compel us. That you would challenge us. That you would convict us. You would comfort us. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. So you can read out louder to yourself, but. Uh, Okay, this is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, we're going to continue down till verse 9. Uh, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built as a house spirit, sorry, to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to. But you are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people to own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen. You can have a seat. I like that. That has some thunder to it there. So... We're gonna look at and examine three things today about answering the call to be part of the church. First is we're gonna look at answering the call to love the church. Second, we're gonna look at answering the call to live sacrificially, and then answer the call to link up with others. Now, just to give you some context, this, this passage is a call in and of itself. And it's interesting that Peter is the one that is writing this because Peter was there, had a front row seat at the birth of the church. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus takes the disciples on a little field trip up to Caesarea Philippi and and just kind of gives them a poll question and say, hey, what's the word on the street, guys? Who do people say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he turns the question to the disciples and say, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter comes out and says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And and Jesus gives him the most dap you could give. He says, wow, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father in heaven, And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is the first time in the Bible, the word church is mentioned and uttered at that moment. Peter had a front row seat. And so some 20 plus years later now, Peter is older. He has been this leader in the church as it's grown and spread. And now he is writing to a group of people in a very similar context as we are in today, a group of people who have been uh, marginalized because of their faith, a group of people that have in some ways been persecuted or, or slandered because of what they believe and they're following Jesus, and a group of people who maybe start to think, is this thing worth it? Maybe we can just read at home and just call it a day. And so in this context, Peter writes to them and and, kind of lays back down this foundation. And you kind of have to see the irony of some of the words here because the first verse that he points to, it says, as you come to him in verse four, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So he does this thing, this interesting thing. You see this word living stone twice, once it's singular the other time it's plural and then he goes on to say for it stands in scripture behold i am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame now you have to see that that verse that passage there when he says for it stands in scripture this is a quote from isaiah chapter 28 verse 16 and it is a quote that Isaiah is talking about, and it seems like at the time, and the common idea was that he was talking about the actual physical temple. And, and, and there's great note there when he talks about a cornerstone because um, the temple's cornerstone was enormous. Uh, Steve and I had the opportunity to go to Israel last month and go to Jerusalem and actually see the Temple Mount. Now the temple itself, um, has been destroyed since 70 AD when the Romans destroyed it in retaliation for a Jewish uprising. So it hasn't physically been, been there since. Parenthetically, Jesus had prophesied during his life that, no, that this temple would be destroyed. That was one of the things they said at the trial. You said you was going to destroy this temple when he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. We'll get back to that in a second. But right now, we're talking about the temple, and, and Peter points back to this and says, hey, you, you know that picture in, in Jerusalem of the temple? Now, the temple mount is huge. It's, it's this enormous structure that you can see from any vantage point in Jerusalem. And he says, look, there's a cornerstone in that temple, and if you could just kind of take a zoomed in and look, the third stone from the bottom, right? The first one you can see from the one side of the building to the other, that cornerstone is both angles. It's over 20 feet long and tons, 11 tons heavy. And what they would do in those times and even still to this day is you start building, you make the cornerstone first, and that is essentially this foundation that holds the entire building together. And so Peter is evoking this image. He's saying to them, look, this this stone, this cornerstone, this is what Isaiah is talking about. Look at what's going to happen to it. He says, I'm laying a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Well, that's kind of strange. Why would Isaiah be talking about a cornerstone as a hymn and believing in a stone? Well... Peter makes it clearer. He goes on and say, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So what is the point here? He's revealing that Jesus himself is the cornerstone. And there's this this, this prophecy, this this moment in which the stone that was supposed to be the one that built up the entire house, the spiritual house of Israel, was rejected by the builders. They said, "Mm, no, we don't want that stone. We don't like that stone. Give us another stone to build on. And so as a result of that, Jesus was rejected. He was sentenced to death. He was crucified, and he died. But Peter also says here, hey, this stone that was rejected is considered precious by God and in his resurrection, which we just celebrated last week, that it is proof of the fact that this is the one, he is the one who is actually the foundation of the household of faith. And then he turns his attention toward this group of believers who are experiencing this sense of alienation, experiencing this sense of persecution. It's saying, hey, first of all, don't forget the very one who is the cornerstone of this building was alienated and persecuted. That's how we got here to begin with. He is the foundation of it. So if if it happened to him, don't be surprised if it happens to you. But then he goes on further to say that this living stone, this cornerstone that actually he was planning to build something on top of called the building a temple of God. And guess what? You are living stones. See, Jesus himself is not the only one personified as as this rock that's a human being. But he actually says, all of you, church, are the living stones. All of you are the ones that are being built upon. And so he corrects this idea well he didn't it wasn't an idea then cuz the interesting thing is for these first few centuries like i said they were being persecuted there were no church buildings <laughs> they weren't they weren't going to a, a building and calling it the church they were the church and he's saying that god is building something as a result and so when he's flashing back to when jesus first told him in matthew 16 upon this rock i will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. He's saying, we are the church, the building that is being built out. Why is that important? Because the church is not a building, but the people. It's the people. It's not a building. And it says the church is and it's not a club for the elite, but it's a hospital for the sin sick. Now, that's important to know because this completely undermines and flips the, the kind of common perception of who, why people even go to church, because we think we're better than other people? No, because I know I'm sick. That's why I go to a doctor, right? When I'm straight and I'm good, I don't need to. But when I know I got issues going on, that's where I go in order to, to be whole. So the church, the literal word in Greek is ekklesia, which means the called out ones. So he calls them out to be this building together. Now, it's very important to see this because essentially, if I look at the church as a social club, then it's like, well, I could decide to be a part of that or not. If I look at it as a building, now I can decide to go or not. But if I see it as who I am, then that's a whole different perspective. And this is what Peter is saying here. And what does it mean to be a part of a, a church, he says, it's look. And then the other thing that's important is he is writing to specific local bodies of believers. What do I mean by that? If you go just, you don't know, have to flip there, but you can, but in 1 Peter, the first few verses, he tells you who he's writing to. And so while there is a universal church that exists, the, the primary context in the New Testament is a local body of people coming together. Let me try to make that more plain. In the New Testament, there is no such thing as a Christian who is not a part of a local church. I'm going to say it again. In the New Testament, there is no such thing as a Christian who is not a part of a local church. Podcasts don't count, although shout out to folks who like to listen. YouTube views don't count, although shout out to those who like to watch. But ultimately, what it means to be part of a church is to be part of a a community of stones that are being built together to form something. So why church? Well, the first aspect is because Christ chose to be the cornerstone of the church. This is his idea. Peter didn't go to Jesus and like, yo, you know what would be dope? Like if we had this thing called like a church and I was like leading it. And you know what I mean? Like after you go, just, you know, think think about it. That wasn't how it went down. The church was Jesus's idea. And he purchased it with his death, burial, and resurrection to create a people to himself. And he said, look, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So he says, I am putting my investment, my perspective into this body of people who will transform the world and the darkness will not overcome the light. That's my plan. That's my plan. So, and and we see this in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, Look, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church enough that he died for her. So, I don't know about you, but I know if somebody's saying that they love me, but they hate my wife, we're not going to be like cool like that. (laughs) We're going to have issues. And that's not to say that my wife is perfect, but it's to say, look, this, we're a package deal. And Jesus is, is the same way, jealous with his bride. That's another metaphor that the, body, uh, that the Bible uses for the church is the bride of Christ. And he's like, yo, you need to stop. So, y'all need to stop talking about my wife like that, my woman. Hold on. <laughs> You know, it's amazing, like, just to see, like, I tried to Google, like, like inspir- inspiring quotes about the church just in preparing for this. I couldn't even find a page that just had, had good quotes about the church. Every quote on, on the internet that I could find, like, pages-wise, was negative. So there's, a, there, there's, there's something going on there. But, so the first point is to love Jesus is to love the church, is to love the church. Second point, answer the call to live sacrificially. Answer the call to live sacrificially. Peter goes on to say, for to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, verse 5, chapter 2. And what he's doing there is he's building off of this analogy, right? Because the temple was not just a museum that people just went to look at things. Things, Worship was happening there, worship particularly in the form of sacrifices. Now, even to build the temple, if you look and read what happened, the people invested money. There was no government plan. The, The people had a building fund. And in the building fund they raised the money to build up this temple that first appeared in David uh, Solomon's reign. but once even they invested all the money that they had and it was amazing because at some point they had to tell them stop we got enough the people were so excited to to give that The next step was to offer sacrifices. Well, where did these sacrifices come from? Well, this was their form of currency back then. There was not, you know, ATMs and checkbooks. And so what they had was lambs and goats and and sheep and oxen. And, And these were the things that they used to worship God their best. But now we're in a new era. Jesus has just died. He's just resurrected. He has just established himself as the cornerstone. So you know what? Peter's saying, now the old system that pointed to Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice, those lambs, you don't have to keep sacrificing lambs. Why? Because behold, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world has done that, has accomplished that. But now what you have is spiritual sacrifices to offer. And he says, and and, and now you Gentiles and Jews and anybody who's following Jesus, are the royal priesthood who are offering those spiritual sacrifices in the temple, that temple being us together. Now, so look at what God does here. The first people built God a temple of stones. Now God is building a temple with people as stones. Ultimately, he said, I never was one that could like just fit inside of a building anyway. That was just a picture to show you that you were supposed to be the stones that were going to be the inhabitants of me. Now, well, what kind of sacrifices are these spiritual sacrifices? I'm so glad you asked. What does that look like, right? We're not sacrificing rams and bulls and goats. Well, what does that mean now? Well, throughout the New Testament, it explains that. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fill the law, fulfill the law of Christ. Mm. What does it look like to offer sacrifices to God? Well, let's zoom out again. We were alienated from God because of our sin. We were alienated from the promises of God because of our unrighteousness. God, while we were yet sinners, died for us, giving us his righteousness and reconciling us to himself and making us who were not his people a people of himself. He adopted us in light of the fact that there was beef and we were the ones that were guilty. And so what does he now tell his people to do? The same thing bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So you see the issue that, you know, well, uh, when people say, man, I don't go to church because there's so many hypocrites. The church is full of hypocrites. And I'm like, well, we're not full. We can always use one more. (laughs) We got room. We got room. Because if there was ever such a thing as a perfect church, the moment that one of us stepped inside of it, it would cease to be. You see, because we're the ones that have the problem. We're the ones that are alienated, all of us. And that's why we need the doctor to give us that sense of healing together. But in the midst of that, we have conflict with each other as well. In our own shortcomings, and what does Jesus tell us to do there? He says sacrifice is loving each other and living with each other. We cannot fulfill the law of Christ if we're like, yo, y'all are just too self-righteous for me, so I'm just going to be by myself because y'all are too self-righteous. Well, it sounds to me like you do the one that's self-righteous too. You're too self-righteous to be around self-righteous people. <laughs> Join the party. We all have those issues. And so the cornerstone is not just the foundation of the building, but it's also the standard against which all the other stones are aligned. This is what I mean by that. So, in the, so you know, you have this, right? So this is a brick. And by itself, it's just one stone. It, you know, how is it straight? Is it crooked? We don't know. But when you measure this up against a cornerstone, you would know, oh, it's off angle. It needs to be aligned. And then when they stack another brick on top of that brick and another brick on top of that, just like these p- pillars here, now you can see where the brick is supposed to be placed and if it's out of alignment or not. But if you by yourself, it looks just as straight regardless of which angle it's supposed to be in. We need each other to be built on top of, of the cornerstone so that we can see where we're supposed to fit and where we're supposed to be adjusted. We need that. So so here's some here's some particular things that embody what it means to be a church and why we need it. One is to assure ourselves of our own salvation. We need that sense of reflection into each other to say to spur each other on to good works. We also need to share the gospel and bring people into a place where they can experience gospel community and Christian community and a picture of what it looks like to be the redeemed. We need to also edify each other. Let me encourage you because you, we go to sometimes because of the hyper-individualism of this country, we look at a church and go, well, you know, they don't meet my needs. You know, the worship is, you know, is, is cool, but, you know, I'm more into this or the, the preaching, you know, that guy... He sweats a lot, so, you know, <laughs> I'm not really into that. Uh, they look like, you know, their, their media department is, is coming along, but maybe in a couple years, uh, it'll be up to my standards. Um, uh, or, or, you know, it's just, uh, they're just kind of young, and, you know, it's that. and so we come through these things, but here's the reality that God is saying, that we're here to edify each other. Instead of thinking about how Christians in the church are slowing you down, look at how you could speed other people up. Maybe you're supposed to be that person to help it move forward, not to keep it slow. But we got to see that we're supposed to be interconnected to do that and also to glorify God. So to love Jesus is to live sacrificially together. It is going to take sacrifice. It is going to be uncomfortable. But this is the very thing that God uses to conform us and align us as the cornerstone to, to him. To build us as a building in which we can see the glory of God manifest in a different way. Because that's the other thing. You take a rock and it's like, oh, that's not really glorious. That's just like a brick, whatever. But you put that brick uh, into a building and on, the top of other build, uh, on top of other bricks and, and design, have a designer design that thing. And now all of a sudden you got a building that you go, wow, this is a nice building. We, my point is we cannot be all of what we're called to be unless we do it together. This is not a message of individualism, but of interdependence. And that involves enduring, bearing with each other, confronting each other, forgiving one another. That is all a part of what is a part of being a part of the, the, the building, which is Christ. This The sacrifice is costly, but it's worth it. Now, I know a little something about um, costly buildings now. My wife and I, we uh, just signed a lease in an apartment in our in New York City, and um, if anybody has done that before, you know that that comes, that's expensive, and you have to very measure the cost, because you know, once you even decide, I think I like this bill, well first of all, in in our case, the the, the particular place that we saw and liked, it it came with a broker attached to it, so that meant just from the jump, there was 12% of the annual rent that it was gonna cost, we had to pay as our fee, just to get into the, just to see if that was something that we wanted to, Go, go to but that was the cost but then in addition to that to even just apply to get a yes or a no we had to then pay extra money to apply to see if we were worthy enough to get the place and then of course once you do that and if you say and they said yes praise god now it's first month last month security deposit cha-ching bank account that was on fleek now on week is <laughs> gone nothing left and so, but it's costly, but it was worth it though, because that's where we wanted to live. So it's, is it costly to be in community with each, with each other? Absolutely, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Thirdly, and lastly, we are to answer the call to link up with others. Peter goes on to say, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. This picture that now, it doesn't just, this building isn't just for us to to grow together, to live sacrificially, although that's important, and it's not even just to have this identification and understanding that Christ is the cornerstone and to love his church, although that's important. But ultimately, he says, this, this is the full revelation of what I plan to do. I, wanted, I did this all together so that we can link up with each other and so that we can display a glory that none of you could inde- independently. So uh, uh, just in the same way that a building's glory is only seen when the bricks come together, the glory of Christ is only seen when believers come together. There's something about what happens when, the, when you get the full panorama that you can't get. You know what's the amazing thing about God? He's a, he even arranges it in our voices that you, you got to sing either alto, tenor, or soprano at one particular time. You can't sing all three of them. We even need each other for harmony and blend. We need each other to bring each other together in order to display a version of who God is that we cannot do independently and he sent us on mission to complete what he started. Now, this is the other point that is so important and crucial when people, you know, kind of want to dichotomize this and make it, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Because would you see what happens in Acts chapter 1, Jesus finishes hanging out with the disciples for about 40 days after his resurrection. And he says, all right, I want y'all to stay here until you get the word. Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. You'll be my witnesses and go everywhere. Go global with this thing. So then it says that he went on the cloud and like went up to heaven. And they were all like, whoa. Yo, you think he coming back, Thomas? I doubt it. And... uh, (laughs) <laughs> and they look up, and they look up for so long, it says that angels had to come, like, yo, bro, like, he gone. Like, he ain't coming back right now. Like, this is your go time now. That was the signal, go be the church. And what happens in Acts chapter 2, they wait, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, Peter preaches this amazing message, and, and then it it's, it's, it's describes what happens next. Look, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Do you see what's happening there? It says, first of all, they devoted themselves to the word. That is a key marker and indicator of if you are part of a church is that, is the word being proclaimed? Is the teachings of Christ being exalted? If so, then you got something going on. And is it, but it in, in there, it says, in the fellowship with each other, the breaking of bread and prayers. And that breaking of bread isn't just like eating together, but specifically it's giving a snapshot of the communion that Jesus told them to remember when he said, do this in remembrance of me. And they prayed together. And it says, and when all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done. Now, look, when you look at those words and those descriptions, how many of this is happening by somebody in their lonesome in their room? All of this is being done corporately and collectively. And so the word was being exalted. Worship was happening. Now that, that upward focus was happening, but then it goes on to say, and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So look, what's happening there? They didn't just have nice little Bible studies and be like, you know, good little Christian people and just kind of in their corners. Like, no, what they did was they said, hey, you got you, you got some needs over there, sis? Let, let's, let me sell what I have so I can help provide for your needs. And then somebody else said, you know what? I'm gonna sell my house so that the church can have what it needs to take care of these widows over here. We see that in Acts chapter 5, and they just continue to pull their resources together so that anybody that had need. Now, this was revolutionary in this time. In the Greco-Roman world, rich people didn't consult with poor people. We don't know nothing about that though, right? Um, (laughs) Or people didn't, Jews and Gentiles didn't interact. Male and female didn't interact. It was, it was, everybody was segregated according to these lines, and they were breaking all of these conventions and saying, anybody who wants to be part of this fellowship, because we realize we're part of the same building. And it's distributed. And even if you weren't part of the building, you pour over there, you have needs, let me go help you out. And it says, and day by day, they attended the temple together. And again, breaking bread in their homes, just like us. They love to the fellowship and eat together, I tell you. So, but then it goes on. It goes on to say, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. This was not some exclusive in crowd that people had to just kind of get the secret word to get in. They were like, yo, this is, we've gone public with this thing. We're inviting anybody to be a part of this. And it says that the Lord was adding to their number daily because people were looking at this community, looking at this building. They were seeing the glory of God and wanting to be a part. That is the vision and the picture of what the church is not a building of religious people, but a, a community and of people who are building up God's reputation, building up His name, and building up glory to His honor. The reality is, we're all building on something. It says in this passage that the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. But if you look at that and slow down for a second, you see they they were builders. They just decided that Christ wasn't what they were building on. What are you building your life on today? We're all building something. And if it's not built on Christ, it will crumble. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but if it's a relationship, that thing will end at some point. If it's a job, if it's whatever your identity is on, it's a faulty foundation if it's not on Christ. So we see here that the cornerstone, he because this is the amazing thing. We can come to him with all of our faults, even if I'm not my best today. Even if I fall short, I still can come to Christ as that cornerstone and that rock because that's the very thing that he paid for, my shortcomings and my failures. The purpose of the church is to worship God, make disciples, and renew the world through good news and good works. This is what we're here for. There's the upward, vertical dynamic of us and God, there's the communal dynamic of making disciples in the church, and then there's the external dynamic of us going out and renewing the world, not just through what we say, as we saw in Acts chapter 2, but what we do as well. This is the dynamic of connect, grow, and serve that we talk about at the bridge every Sunday. That's what this is about. It's about being a temple that is being built up to the glory of God, to display him. It's interesting. There's two two major structures you see in the Bible that are built. The first one you see is the Tower of Babel, and humans built this temple to give glory to themselves. The second is the temple that God is building well, that he built in the Old Testament, but that ultimately was a snapshot in the picture of us that he's building for his glory, which also is to our benefit as well. But the last picture that we see is that this, of this building, why is it significant, is because it is a preview of what is to come. Now, I like going to the movies, and I especially like making the previews. I hate when I miss the previews. And what a preview is, what a trailer is, is it is an indication of what's to come. Oh, cool. We didn't miss it. And it says the following preview has been approved for all audiences. And this preview gives you a snapshot of what the movie is like. It gives you about two minutes to just see, like, yo, you really should check this thing out because it's going to be hot. So you see the preview and go, yo, Guardians of the Galaxy, the second one, yo, I'm there for that. Or, or, or Star Wars, ooh, that looks like that's going to be really good. And I'm going to make plans in light of seeing this preview that is going to entice me to actually go and behold the real thing the church is supposed to be the preview of the kingdom of God that is coming the church is the coming attractions to say coming soon to a theater near you coming soon to a neighborhood near you coming soon to a community near you God's reign where he loves each a group of people from all over the spectrum who are faulty who are flawed who are broken but that who are forgiven in him who love each other who share and serve each other that this is the coming attraction of what what's to come. And that preview looks a whole lot better when there's actually people in this room. (laughs) Well, there's another picture of that preview that we got to see just a couple weeks ago. Some of you may have heard about the terrorist attack in Egypt uh, that took place on Palm Sunday. So they did on Palm Sunday, knew it was going to be a high volume of Christians and this uh, suicide bomber apparently inspired by ISIS and a part of them went into this church, went went into the most crowded place that he could find in that church and set it off killing women and children and men as well. And it was something that rocked their community. But the interesting thing is just moments later, um, days later, the Egyptian newscast actually interviewed one of the women who lost her husband because of this tragedy? And I want you to see what she says. Check this out. I to forgive him. Okay, I have to translate. و... Can't و... And I ask the Lord for forgiveness. Think, think believe me. If they think, و... they will و... know و... that we didn't do anything و... wrong to و... them. و... Think again. و... What are you و... doing? و... Is it wrong و... or right? و... May God و... forgive و... you, و... and we و... also forgive و... you. و... Believe me. You put my husband in a place و... that و... I could not have dreamed و... of. و... Believe و... me, I am و... proud of him, and I wish I was there beside him. Believe me, and I thank you. Egyptian Christians are made of steel. Egyptian Christians for hundreds of years are bearing many atrocities and disasters. The Egyptian Christian deeply loves his country. The Egyptian Christian bears everything for the sake of his nation. And oh, how great is this amount of forgiveness you have. If your enemy knew how much forgiveness you have for them, he would not believe it. If it was my father, I could never say this. These people have so much forgiveness. This is their faith and religious conviction. These people are made from a different substance. May God have mercy on Am Naseem. He is a hero and a martyr and a great example to all of us, to everyone who is sitting and criticizing his country about how things are going. This country is moving on by patience, by perseverance, by endurance, by this great woman and her children in whom their father yet lives, brought up to be men, real men. You can stop it there he saw a picture of a coming attraction and he wanted to see more. This is what it looks like for us as a church to come together and to fulfill the law of Christ, bearing one another's burdens and bearing witness to the one who is the cornerstone, who forgave all of our sins so then we could go and forgive that of others. Well, the basic application point here is really simple. Be part of his church. If you're not, if you've kind of been shopping and hopping around, this is the day that God is saying, if you love me, love my church. I know it's not perfect. I know you've been hurt. I know there have been things that have been done and said in my name there that have been just terrible. But if we were to look at our own resumes, couldn't God say the same about us? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for your word and the fact that you are the cornerstone who builds us up and who is building a movement of people who the world will look at and say, they are made from a different substance. Help us to see and help us to be the church that you've called us to be in Jesus' name, Amen. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.